Good evening. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. So think about this for, for a moment with me. Why do people cry at weddings? Why do people cry at a joyful event? Or maybe why, what are tears of joy? I don't know if that's the same question, but why do people cry at weddings? Here's, here's, here's my answer or an insight I think I've had. Um, I cry at weddings out of an awareness, though it might not be a conscious awareness in the moment, that along with all the joy of connection and love uh, and all that brings, all that we get to feel there as human beings and, and the joy of having that, Finding somebody in any relationship, whether it's an intimate relationship or a um, domestic partnership or not, along with that, inevitably comes the other side of it, which is loss of that. So along with love comes loss and the pain of that. Hmm. That's my answer, so, and a kind of introduction to the topic, so you can contemplate that more. One of the great things about this tradition, and I'm going to suggest later in this talk, the, the perfect teaching of this tradition, the perfect foundational teaching, is that this is an experiential practice. This is a you-verify-it through direct experience, on the cushion, off the cushion, wherever. This is not a agree with the teacher or disagree with the teacher practice. Yeah. Ever. We verify all the Buddhist teachings and all our own questions directly. So I'm reading a book. It is called Healing Through the Dark Emotions by Miriam Greenspan. And when I say I'm reading a book, I mean sometimes I open the book and read parts of it. I am a person that has so much um, unintegrated emotional what? Disintegration. Uh, that's not the word. I don't want to use that. Um, emotional, like non-integration or um, stuff to feel through trauma um, and also like not quite an integrated um, good tolerance. Huh? Great emotional intelligence that I think that a, um, I think that it's, um, part of enlightenment to move towards, to move towards. Mm -hmm. So can I hold certainly everything that's part of me mm -hmm. and push away, <laughs> which, which by the way is all of it, which by the way is all of it. 
That's one of the great truths is that there's not, there's not um, some energy that's ultimately out there. Yeah. I remember seeing in an early Dharma talk that I didn't think I experienced much anger. Uh, no, I was wrong about that, you know? That maybe I hadn't woken up to some of what was inside of me there or part of my experience as a human being. So sometimes when I pick up this book, which is um, very rich and written by um, someone with lots of great credentials, including being a um, Vipassana teacher, not teacher, Vipassana pr practitioner, insight meditation practitioner of over 20 years at the time the book was written. Hmm. Um, sometimes I pick up these teachings and though they resonate as truth and as something for me to explore, lots of richness to explore, um, sometimes I also have some reaction in the body because it can bring up um, stuff I've not dealt with yet, mm -hmm. stuff I put to one side. Mm -hmm. And I've come to believe that we can put things to one side and it's great to have tools to put things to one side, but we, we can't put things to one side forever. At some point, what we need to deal with karmically needs to be dealt with, needs to be met, needs to be felt through, needs to be felt through and not um, repressed or ignored. For instance, if we have a full bladder and it's the wrong time to pee, we can say, I am the master of my bladder. We can affirm the part of us that can hold it or doesn't need to pee right now. These are all tricks that I've talked about with um, fellow practitioners. You know, sometimes you're in a retreat or you're in a, um, I use the restroom today toward the end of the meditation period, but probably if we were in person, I would have waited a bit longer, right? But eventually, I recognize this bladder that's not separate from me. And, right? Can't put it off forever. Empty the bladder. Mm. Cooperate with the bladder. Right? Not separate from me. Not separate from me. So same with karmic material, traumatic material, or even just plain old emotions. We don't talk about this a lot in Zen. And I'm gonna talk some about not talking about it too, but um, even just plain old emotions, not separate not separate from me. Hmm. 
how how strange uh strange and obviously delusional it would be to say upon feeling my full bladder ah full empty these are opposites when opposites arise the truth has been lost my bladder is neither full nor empty right ridiculous in this situation of a full bladder to cut back to the truth of emptiness to the truth of non-duality to assert that the um, only truth <laughs> is non-duality hmm? or if i want to assert that the only real truth is non-duality I need to be okay with wet pants. Really deeply, 100% non-attached. Which, by the way, is not functional. Not functional. And in our vision of enlightenment, or what that might be, to be an awake human being, yeah, it's certainly not non-functional in day-to-day life. So I say all of this to illustrate, hopefully clarify some of the problem that Zen, the Zen tradition itself, um, and I can say that when when I see multiple legit <laughs> Zen teachers with all of their credentials, a trap, a trap that we can fall into. And I think we do fall into, especially sometimes around um, dealing, or rather not dealing with, not meeting, not feeling, not acknowledging, um, I'll just say emotions here. Hmm? And every time I say that, you can, if you wish, think of it as meaning emotions and um, trauma, which are not the same thing, not the same bucket, but I'm thinking here of, um, I want to in some way include uh, all of the stuff that we sometimes don't deal with. And because um, because it's not a clear part of the Zen tradition, meaning that I can in any way guarantee that um, you here tonight or anyone listening to this talk later is practicing with a teacher who's going to um, integrate, <laughs> acknowledge, befriend, um, find the gifts of all kinds of different experiences, emotional experiences specifically, Um, then unfortunately I have to say that we cannot call Zen a complete path. Because though we are transforming, though more and more folks 
do recognize the truth of what I am talking about. Um, we're not there yet. We're not there yet as a whole. I still see the, you know, the, you know, the masters that, you know, uh, their students will post like a picture of them or some whatever background, you know, and their quote, you know, with their name, sensei such and such or roshi such and such. Yeah, I still say, I still see, um, just cut, just let go, just cut, just let go. And when material that's difficult to be with, um, or that needs attention, but it's the wrong time to do it, um, comes up and threatens to uh, kind of overwhelm us, then having tools to just cut or just let go in that moment or just not pee right now are great, are great. And we come back to it. Hmm? A therapist named Jessica many years ago who taught me to say uh, when certain material came up, not now, we're going to save it for Jessica. I'm going to save it for the therapy session. We'll process it then. Hmm? Yeah. Hmm. So when there's significant material, sometimes um, Zazen practice or Zen practice can be done alongside work with a therapist or other professional or working through a, a book like I um, am doing very, very, very slowly. Sometimes people hit something where they need to stop Zazen practice altogether. Yeah. And in case I haven't said it enough, you know, we don't need to do all difficult all the time, right? We can have breaks from that and use tools to get breaks from that and just enjoy the present moment and all that. But it's not a complete teaching. It's not a complete teaching, this just cut. Yeah. Mm. I had a young person um, tell me once, uh, well, the way I deal with death is not to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if we want, if we're, if we're going towards awakening, eventually, like, this denial strategy cannot be a final strategy. Opening, opening, opening. Um, I haven't read much of Miriam's book. Yeah. It was suggested by another therapist, but um, such gems, such gems in what I've um, read so far. And um, grounded in practice. So um, I'm going to endorse it wholeheartedly.
right here right now. So uh, here's a story from her book that I read just today. Um, so this is a story of emotional flow. Um, she says, my third child was born with a neuromotor disability that has no name. She walks with leg braces and a body brace. Her hand use is severely limited. Her muscle tone is neurologically weak throughout her body. Her coordination so poor and her muscle sense so limited that she broke 11 bones in the first eight years of her life. Esther has spent too many moments of her young life in pain. Her life is more limited than most, yet she's one of the happiest people I know. While her neurological system bogs her down, her emotional genius keeps her buoyant. Most of what I know about emotional alchemy comes from what she teaches me on a daily basis. Um, so just pausing here from Miriam's words to say, uh, she talks, this author talks about emotional alchemy as a, um, if we're able to feel the so-called dark emotions, you know, the grief, the despair to tolerate and feel and be with, then they transform or um, there's, a, there's another side, right? If we're willing to feel the loss later, right? We can feel the connection, for instance, with all of those folks that we're connected to. Um, most of what I know about emotional alchemy, so feeling the dark emotions and then um, finding their gifts or actually transforming and getting to feel the other side of the coin comes from what she teaches me on a daily basis. Esther was the first child with disabilities to attend barn day camp in Plymouth, Vermont. She was thrilled to swim, run in her own way, feed the goats and sing her heart out after lunch. She experienced the delight of camping out under the stars and pushed herself to hike as far as the other kids, though it left her spent. From age 6 to 11, she passed her summers at this camp. The next step would have been the residential camp for older children, but the physical rigor was out of her reach. So at age 11, having completed her last overnight, Esther sat for the last time at morning circle, surrounded by campers, counselors, staff, and parents. Morning circle started with 10 minutes of silence, after which the talking stick was passed around, a Native American tradition for holding council meetings, and everyone who wanted to had a chance to speak. When it was Esther's turn, she had this to say. Thank you, Helen, the director and my counselors and friends and everyone here. Thank you for having me here at this camp. 
It's meant a lot to me and my family that I could be here even though I have special needs. I'll always remember my counselors and how great they were. And morning circle and the overnights, I won't talk about the skinny dipping. I'll always remember looking out for the out of the tent at the beautiful trees. I'll miss you all and I will never forget you. You'll always be in my heart. As Esther spoke, her emotion was palpable, even if you weren't sitting close enough to notice the tears in her eyes. She was grieving and grateful at the same time. Right? Grieving and grateful at the same time. All together, all there at once. And it all came through in the ineffable way that emotional energy is communicated to others. Around the circle, counselors, campers, and parents, men and women, boys and girls were dabbing at their eyes. A few were sobbing quietly. A few minutes later, we were all smiling and singing "'Tis a gift to be simple." Esther's grin and her sparkling blue eyes were infused with an exuberant, cheerful energy. She sang, she laughed, and hugged everyone goodbye, then went home happy. This is emotional flow. This is emotional flow, which I'll add here is the opposite of stuckness. This is emotional flow. When the dark emotions are tolerated, mindfully expressed, and allowed to flow to completion, they change their valence. Esther's sorrow about losing camp and her gratitude for camp were two sides of the same coin. Emotional flow is a source of connection to self and others. Esther's sorrow and gratitude were felt by everyone in the circle in his or her own way, a transpersonal energy. Transpersonal energy. Not mine, not yours, but transcending that. I'm adding some here. Linking the sorrow and gratitude in everyone's hearts. This empathetic, empathetic, Empathic ah, connection had a deepening effect on the circle, bringing a sense of intimacy to this group of friends and strangers. Everyone left with their hearts just a little more open. It's hmm. a great illustration. So one concern I've heard um, from time to time in communities about um, integrating somehow this teaching on emotions or some sort of teaching on emotions uh, and not just uh, they're not real um, <laughs> is that people can get stuck in emotions. Well, people can get stuck on anything, right? So people can feel sadness and instead of sadness or grief or despair, something there or whatever, right? And instead of just feeling sadness, fully expressing it as necessary, or as moved, letting it go, you know, letting it, letting the flow happen, hmm? they get a story going. I'm so sad, I'm a sad person, you know, or whatever. Hmm? And there can be a stuckness there. There can be a stuckness there. 
But I think um, we don't need to worry about this so much as we might. <laughs> so if we have people in our Zen centers, you know, that are stuck in this way, then we can help them get unstuck. Um, rep repression is certainly its own kind of stuckness, because <laughs> there's still not a moving on, you know, this, this non-acknowledgement of sadness, and it can come from a deep teaching in our culture that it's not okay to be sad, or that we somehow need to be ruled by our uh, reason and not our emotions, right? It's not the first time we've heard that, right? Mm. So I think that somehow um, this cultural aversion to emotions has not been seen through by Zen practice as an institution, at least not all the way. Hmm. And I think the real, if not danger there, like at least a problem, because um, when emotions or materials repressed, um, it can really cause problems, really cause problems, you know? And there are some teachers who have um, found this nice tradition that says, um, just cut, just cut, and oh great, like, oh great, you know? I don't have to feel this hard stuff. Here's some quotes I wanted to read on suffering. Oh great. Um, Franz Kafka says, you can hold back from the suffering of the world, but perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. It's difficult, it's uncomfortable to feel through certain things in the body, bearing witness to the suffering of the world. But that aversion, <laughs> that trying to push away, perhaps the one suffering we could have avoided. Um, Michael de Montaigne, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, says in old patriarchal language, sorry, the man who fears suffering is already suffering from what he fears. And Lenny Bruce said, we all live in a happy ending culture, a what should be culture instead of a what is culture. We're all taught that fantasy, but if we were taught this is what is, I think we'd all be a little less screwed up. Well, a little less screwed up. <laughs> mm. This is all to in part be clear that um, though I am acknowledging that I have unworked through emotional and traumatic material personally, like a, a, a great deal of it, you know, to the extent that um, I will be reading very slowly through this book and taking breaks from uh, feeling hard stuff. Uh, and reading material that brings up even more hard stuff on top of hard stuff. So that's why it's so slow, right? 
Mm -hmm. I have to read one or two concepts or ideas and feel through it and integrate it. And then I can take in a little more. Mm -hmm. yeah, different people, different karma, different paces. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this talk is in part to say no, like, okay, clearly I'm not one of those teachers that says if you have emotional uh, material or uh, see a negative emotion or dark emotion, like you just cut it um, and call it good, uh, just master it. Um, I am even going so far as to say that's not what Zen is, that's not what enlightenment is, that's not what mastery is. Hmm? It's akin to holding the bladder. Hmm? Healthy for a little bit, useful for a little bit, not forever. Um, I am also saying what? Oh, it's just a further point. I have a further point to make. Here it is. Oh, so this is back. So there is a um, redeeming, very redeeming part of our tradition. Hmm? Because Zen communities and even Zen teachers, like, of course, um, can fall into delusion. Um, and this is not a binary thing. Like, either they're deluded or they're enlightened. Huh? But can fall into um, traps. Because we're human beings. Hmm? Their teacher taught them just cut, and so they teach just cut. And they teach it to their students, but they're also doing it themselves. Hmm? They're also not facing that emotional material. And there are other traps that can be fallen into. There are other traps to be fallen into. Um, so the, the perfect teaching, the wonderful, wonderful salvation of Zen practice is that deeply and clearly part of our tradition is that we are an experiential tradition that we experience these truths directly, all truths directly. Mm -hmm. And so eventually that bears out. So eventually if we as individuals are doing Zazen, looking deeply, continuing to practice, the truth, including any dissonance it has with whatever crazy thing the teacher's saying, will continue to become clear. This is the perfection of this tradition that we keep affirming this and of the truth itself, that it's as clear and as simple as day and has nothing to do with agreeing or disagreeing with any teacher or any scripture or any past master or any set of rules or principles. Mm -hmm. You agree, you're in, you disagree, you're out. It's, it's not that. It's not that. 
It's don't believe it because I said it, you know, check for yourself. To paraphrase the Buddha there. Don't believe it just because this old, old monk said it. Verify it for yourself. So if we're honest and we... If we're honest, eventually, even if the teacher's saying, just cut, just cut, it's not real. Like, <laughs> when we come to recognize this rich um, reality as not separate from us. Not separate from us. This rich reality of um, emotional flow, including emotional flow and our capacity for emotional intelligence, which is just presence with all that is. Well, thanks for listening to that tonight.